Come gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale. Of goblins and elves and miscoated dells, and heroes who strive to prevail. Luxurious sweets were arranged for our friends by the grace of the brothers Dorcalic. They fed to their fullest on aged cheese and pullet, and on the morrow rose fit for a frolic. You're listening to Aliads and the Aliad Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 3 The Rocky Road to Allsford. said second bell. Exactly! Well, just because we're half a bell early doesn't mean they're late. Hey, early worm gets the dirt, that's all I'm saying. A bell past dawn is early, Ally. Look around. Trenia and I stood on the cobblestone sidewalk outside the Great Hall of Cothram. Other than us, the streets were empty. Quiet. A few candles still flickered above a handful of doorways, but most of the lanterns in town had long since fizzled out. Smoke rose from a few chimneys nearby, a sure sign that people were gradually rising. But indeed, the first bell, the herald of dawn, seemed to have been largely ignored. Golly, Cothram sure was different. Everywhere else I'd been, people were up and at him as soon as there was light in the sky. Especially back home in Fribbleshire, we couldn't afford to wait until the sun was up to get to work. There were animals to feed, fields to plow, crops to harvest, weeds to pull... There was never enough time in the day to do all that needed to be done, even in the summer when there were 16 whole bells between sunrise and sunset. In my mind, rest and relaxation were on the same level of luxury as velvet curtains and gold-rimmed teacups, which I had experienced for the first time the day before and greatly enjoyed, but golden teacups and sleeping in? Now, that was asking too much. I paced back and forth on the sidewalk, looking this way and that in hopes of seeing the Dorcalic brothers, while Trenia leaned against the iron fence outside the hall. The wind was blowing, of course. It was never not blowing. And the sun still hadn't crested the grassy green peaks to the east, so it was a tidbit nibbly in the shady streets of Cothram. They're coming, Ali. Don't fret. Oh, I'm frettin'. I'm fretty fret frettin'. I'm frettin' frettin' ready to flip and find Granbauer, I tell you what. You can't tell me not to fret. Well, then I shan't, especially because you're rather funny when you fret. You can't blame me for being excited, though. Excitement is rather your thing. I mean, look at us. We're about to travel with a legit college-trained wizard, a battle-tested warrior, and a bona fide bard. It's the squad, Trenia! It's, it's the squad I've been dreaming about since I left home all those moons ago. It's finally happening. It's, it's finally coming true. Ah, uh, yes. The Aliod squad, was it? It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I mean, it's not exactly what I had in mind. It was supposed to be five people, originally. One who can fight their way out of anything. One who can stealth their way out of anything. One who can talk their way out of anything. One who can think their way out of anything. And one who can make anything out of anything. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I've always planned to be the fighter, as you know. But between you and Pogrin, that seems pretty covered. Although more the merrier, right? I assume you have Russ pegged as your thinker. Yep, and Delarin is the talker. Ah, so technically, we're missing the maker and the stealther. But three warriors, a wizard, and a bard, I mean, that's probably fine, huh? That's still a squad. I mean, you gotta take what comes, right? Well, unless you're planning to hold auditions, then yes. Hey, 
Maybe I could be the stealther. I can be pretty sneaky in a pinch. Trinia narrowed her eyes at me. Ali, I mean this with all due respect, but you walk as loudly as a horse. Oh, I do not. I, I can be very quiet when I want to be a horse. Oh, you just listen. I stepped onto my tippy toes and hunched over in a sneaky posture and took several steps along the sidewalk. See? Silent as a snail. Wait, what? What? Uh, how? No, no, I'm not a horse! I'm sneaky! Trinia and I turned to see a horse and rider a ways down the street. They walked slowly towards us, and it wasn't hard to guess who the rider was. He had a large, muscular frame, long red hair pulled partially back, and a short, fiery beard. Both rider and horse were clad in the purple insignia of Cothram, and the horse's tackle was studded with gilded rivets. There was only one person it could have been, Pogrin Dorcalic. Pogrin reined in his palfrey and greeted us with a chipper. Good morning. Good morning, Pogrin. Uh, ooh, uh, Master Pogrin. Oh, there's no need for that. To tell you the truth, I'm looking forward to a few days away from ceremony and sycophants on the road. I don't often get to be just Pogrin. Pogrin then addressed Trenia, who thus far had given Pogrin all the attention of a flea's sneeze. It's nice to see you again, Trenia. Trenia gave a faint smile and bowed her head with a graceful balance of civility and standoffishness. Pogrin pressed on, clearly hoping for a warmer reception. I trust the accommodations were to your liking. I made sure you were put in the finest rooms Cothram has to offer. They were lovely. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. There's nothing better than a good night's rest before a journey, no? Trenia nodded in response, and Pogrin, seeing that his attempt to ingratiate himself was faltering, returned to the business at hand. Well, my brothers are on their way with the coach. They should be here any moment. A coach? Like a carriage? Of course. What do you think, we're going to walk all the way to Allsforth? As if summoned, an elegant, enormous, sturdy-looking carriage drawn by two big brown draft horses turned the corner and drove towards us. The coach, like everything else the Dorcalics owned looked expensive. It was black with purple and gold trim, and the driver's seat was covered in supple black leather. The brass fastenings were freshly polished. The horses were expertly groomed. The luggage rack held an orderly stack of matching trunks, and the wheel hubs sparkled like gold. I never considered myself well-versed in economic matters, but I strongly suspect that that carriage was worth more than my family's entire farm back in Fribbleshire. A hardy woman in a wool coat sat atop the driver's seat, and she brought the coach to a halt where we stood beside the curb. We get to ride in this? The door of the carriage opened, and Delarin's head poked out. Good morning. No sooner had he said the words than two loud clangs rang out from the great hall. Ah, right on time. Trania shot me a look as if to say, See, I told you so. I ignored her and said to Delarin, This is some ride you got here. It's beautiful, isn't it? Father ordered it special for this trip. He's keen on us making an impression in all sports. Come on in. Oh, and Mila can take your gear. Mila, the driver, jumped down from her perch atop the carriage and gestured to my backpack. I'll take that for you, miss. The driver held out her hands to receive my pack, and I was surprised by how reluctant I felt to hand it over. That pack had been with me every step of the road since Derry. Every single item that I possessed lived inside its leather walls. My bedroll, my money, my clothes, my food, the map Hatha made of Joe and Graham's hideouts, the tales of Galena the Great, the 
pretty blue rock that I found beside a lake that Trenia said I shouldn't take because it was dead weight and it's dumb to carry more than you need to when you're on foot, but I took it anyways because it was so smooth and pretty and it stirred something deep inside me in the way that only a pretty blue little rock could. As the driver stood before me, beckoning, I felt like a turtle being asked to remove its shell. That pack was my home. The thought of giving it to a stranger was as vulnerable as handing over the clothes on my back. And to be fair, the last time I let my guard down around my belongings, they were stolen by Joe and Graham. So maybe there were still some lingering threads of general distrust that I hadn't worked through yet. Who could blame me for that? I clutched my pack to my chest and said, Actually, I think I'll keep it with me. We might need it uh, to look at maps and stuff. As you wish, miss. Trenia easily handed her pack over to Mila, but she unfastened her sword belt and clung onto the sheathed blade, her own little bit of home. We both hopped into the coach, and with a flick of the reins, we were on our way. The inside of the coach was as pretty as the outside. It had comfy velvet seats, golden curtains, and tasteful wallpaper. Russ sat slumped in one corner, with his hood pulled over his head. Melka sat comfortably in another corner, with her colorful hat on their lap and Delarin sat between them, smiling politely at me and Trenia, who sat opposite of them all. I nodded to Russ's silent form and whispered to Delarin, Is he sleeping? Yes, father kept him up late making a few modifications to the coach, and besides, second bow is rather early. Trenia gave me another I told you so look, and I returned a withering scowl. Modifications? Like what? I'm not quite sure. But I think the idea was to help protect against- <laughs> Russ grumbled and shifted in his sleep. Oops, sorry. It's a three-day journey to Allsforth. There'll be plenty of time to talk. Melka closed their eyes and joined Russ in slumber. Trenia followed suit and left Delarin and I to watch the world pass by in silence. The sturdy slate buildings of Cothram rolled by outside the windows, and soon- we passed beyond the gates of Cothram and out onto the well-worn road to Allsforth, which wove through farm and fen until it was swallowed up by the towering green ridges of Kell. Every once in a while, Delarin couldn't hold back from pointing out something along the road. That's Turbundi, the highest peak in Kell. I've always wanted to climb it. Or, Father designed this bridge. The old one was wiped out last winter when the silver flow flooded. Look! You can still see the old pieces down there by the bend. But we didn't want to wake anyone up, so we tried to stay quiet. I pulled out the tales of Galena the Great and opened it to my favorite tale, Galena and the Garp Whale, set in the frozen wastes of the southern wilds. Before I turned the first page, I noticed that Delarin was reading the story upside down from where he sat. Without a word, I leaned in and rotated the book so that we could each hold aside and read it together. He was a way faster reader than I was but he was very polite about it. He would reread what he'd read or peer at the pictures until I silently nodded that I was ready to turn the page. I could tell where he was based on when he chuckled or gasped, and he could tell the same of me. It was like the words of Galena the Great were having a conversation for us, offering us the chance to laugh and connect through silent sharing. When the Garp Whale was successfully processed by the Clan of the Long Night and Galena the Great departed the Uldric of the Southern Wilds for her next adventure, Delarin handed me his side of the book, and I closed it upon my lap. I traced a finger along the embossed letters on the cover, feeling the paint and leather of words that meant so much to someone that they etched them into being. I looked up to find Delarin watching me with a smile. Who gave it to you? 
What makes you think someone gave it to me? You cherish it like a gift. I blushed, amazed by his ability to see so clearly what I thought invisible. My friend Bertram. He was the healer in our village. He was the one who taught me how to read. He must care for you very much. That's a beautiful book. He was my best friend after my dad died. Besides Grandbauer, but you know, best human friend. Only human friend, really. I'm glad he was there for you. Me too. I bet you miss him. I gripped the book in my hands and nodded. Apparently, I really, really missed him. Because tears started welling up in my eyes. He was the one who encouraged me to leave home. He told me I had a wedgie of the soul. <laughs> and that I needed to pick it. Ha! A wedgie of the soul! He sounds like a wonderful person. He is. Dalaran gave me a gentle, assuring smile. You'll see him again. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't regret leaving home. Not at all, but it, it's been hard, you know? Trini is great and all. I, I love her dearly, but... But there's something special about someone who's known you your whole life. Yeah, someone who knows you. Someone older and wiser who can guide you when you don't know where you're going. Gosh, I really didn't expect to be crying like this. I, I've been so happy. I, I don't know where this is coming from. Joy and sorrow are neighbors in our hearts. When one is called, the other is never far. <laughs> well, now I know I'm crying. You sound just like him. I hope to meet him someday. So I can know the fullness of your compliment. I hope so too. And I meant it. Just like when I met Trenia at the Sinky Boot, I was struck with a profound desire to have Delarin in my life for all my life, though I barely knew him. I felt a chamber of my heart open its doors and place a reserved for Delarin sign above the window. And this feeling only deepened as we continued to whisper above the wind. When did your father pass away? When I was eight. Almost ten years ago now. How did he die? You know, you're the first person to ask me that since I left home. Am I? Yeah. My chest felt suddenly tight. Why do you ask? Because I want to know you. I want to know your story. Oh. You, you, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Truly, not all tales need to be told. I... I don't know why I don't talk about it more. Well, that wasn't true. I didn't talk about it because it made me super sad. And I didn't have many people in my life that I felt comfortable being super sad around. So I always just kept it buried beneath other, more pleasant memories. But my feely bits were already warmed up from talking about Bertram, and I knew I could trust Dillerin. So I told him. We were all out in the fields one day. My mom, my brother Jamie, and I. Harvesting cabbages. These big green cabbages. It was really hot, and we'd been harvesting for a few hours, just turning the heads and plopping them in the cart, you know, plop. I remember Dad leaning against the cart at one point and clutching his chest, and then he just fell over, and all the cabbages rolled out of the cart. Mom and Jamie rushed over to help him, but I didn't know what to do, so I just righted the cart and put all the cabbages back in. That was something I knew how to do. But then Jamie dumped them all out again. And he and Mom put Dad in the cart, and we wheeled him to Bertram's. I paused for a moment, holding the book in my hands more dearly than ever. Bertram, uh... Well, he tried, but 
Delarin pried my hands away from their vice-like grip on Bertram's book and held them in his own. He held my gaze with his and said, I'm really sorry that happened to you and your family. I believe your dad would be very proud of the person you've become. Why did he have to say that? <laughs> Delarin held my hands as my tears and snot dripped down into the formerly unspoiled carpet of the carriage. At one point, I felt a hand on my back and I looked up. Did Delarin have three arms? How could I have missed that? But it was Trenia's. Evidently, my story had woken her from her slumber. She put her arm around me and pulled me to her chest. You never told me that before. <laughs> you never asked. I'm sorry. Thanks. Gosh, I couldn't believe it. We'd barely been in the carriage for two bells, and there I was, gushing like a spring. Was it simply because of Delarin's gentle presence? Or was it because riding in that carriage was the first time in months I'd had enough downtime to let all my deeper feelings rise to the surface? I mean, every other day on the road, I was focused on taking care of Trenia, getting to the next campsite, the next town, the next inn, the next meal, the next clue to finding Granbauer. There was always an overarching goal to focus on, so everything else got tucked away and slowly built up in the background. But in that carriage, I didn't have to do diddly squat to move towards my goal. The horses and driver were doing that for me. I didn't have to worry about anything. And like the farts I'd been holding in since we entered the coach, it seems that all built-up forces eventually seep out. Ooh, Ali, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Throughout all these tender, smelly moments, the carriage had passed and was passed by Pogrin several times, as his freedom on horseback allowed him to travel at his own pace. He stopped to inspect infrastructure along the road, he paused to chat with villagers, and most importantly, he trotted ahead to scout out trails that could lead to Joe and Graham's hideout in the hills. In all he did, his posture was confident, yet relaxed. His demeanor was serious, yet open. His brows oft furrowed in focus, yet his mouth was quick to smile. Everyone who spotted him along the road seemed pleased to see him, and somehow he managed to look, or genuinely was, equally pleased to see them. He cut an admirable figure in his purple cloak, and the glistening scabbard by his side cemented his image as a noble lord of men. Not long after we crossed a particularly bumpy stone bridge, Pogrin suddenly stood up in his stirrups and scanned the road ahead. His expression grew grave, and I heard him call out to the driver, Mila, wait here. Keep the others by the carriage. Aye, Master Pogrin. With a kick of his heels, Pogrin galloped forward and out of sight. The carriage slowly came to a halt, and somehow, after all of the jostling and bumping around of our trip, it was the absolute stillness that finally shook Russ from his slumber. Huh? What? What's going on? Pogrin is riding ahead to check on something. Maybe he found a sign of Joe and Graham. For a moment, we all nodded and sat in silence. And then we all bolted to get out of the carriage. A dark plume of smoke rose from behind a hill about a hundred yards down the road. It rose quickly in the gusting wind. And it wasn't your dainty little puff of chimney smoke. No. Something big was burning. Something big that probably wasn't supposed to be burning. Well, it certainly could have been a sign of Joe and Graham, considering Joe's fondness for combustibles. Instinctively, Russ, Delarin, Trenia, and I walked towards it. Beg pardon, masters, but Master Pogren meant for you to remain here with the carriage. We all stopped, but none of us turned back. Russ yawned and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. 
Do you know where we are, Dill? We just passed Bachdecker's Bridge. Gods, I've been asleep that long? You may be very glad for the rest in a moment, said Trenia, who had adopted her rigid stiffs about to go down posture. Gosh, I wish she knew how to relax. She was always so on edge. Maybe I could take her to a spa in Allsforth. Big cities had stuff like that, right? Oh, no, you don't think that's old Harvey's shop, do you? What's past Blackdecker's Bridge? There's a little hamlet called Ancient, and it has our favorite shop in the whole world, the Hypothecary. The what? The Hypothecary! Oh, it's the best! It's run by this old guy named Harvey who was trained as an alchemist way back when. He makes all these crazy potions and candies, but he never tells you exactly what they do. Nothing harmful, of course. Just jokes and pranks. One time, I got a box called Twinkle Toe Taffy, and I thought it was going to make my feet sparkle, but lo and behold, I couldn't stop tap dancing for a week. He was even dancing in his sleep. Ah, it was so funny. Funny and exhausting. Oh my gosh, I want to go there. Absolutely. There's no way we're missing it. Remember the time we snuck Pog a drink called Fizzy Wizzy? Fizzy Wizzy? What did that one do? Oh, uh... Deloran's cheeks turned a very deep shade of red. Let's just say it had an effect of a very personal nature. Pog peed bubbles for a whole day. <laughs> oh! Father hasn't let us stop here in ages. Frivolous fool, he said. Father isn't here now, is he? No, he's not. Though... Deloran glanced back at Melka, who was chatting with the driver beside the carriage. It would probably be wise to indulge away from the eyes of history. Indeed. A loud explosion erupted from the direction of the fire. The billowing smoke grew darker. Then it turned purple. And sparkly? What is going on? I don't know, but it's definitely the hypothecary. Probably just an experiment of Harvey's gone wrong. I'm going to go check it out. Deloran grabbed Russ's yellow robes and held him back. Pog said to wait here. There's a fire, and I'm an elementalist. Maybe I can help. It's a purple fire, Russ. Even so. Deloran let go of Russ's robes, but Russ only took a few steps before we saw Pogren racing towards us at a full gallop, screaming. Get back in the coach! Get back in the coach! None of us budged. We were all too confused by what was going on. Russ hollered back. What is it, Pog? Goblins! Get back in the coach! Goblins? What? I looked at the hills on either side of him and noticed several figures scrambling towards us across the slopes. Goblins! <gasps> oh! Melka was first to the carriage, and they slid back inside just as an arrow struck the side of the passenger box. Mila crouched down by her seat and returned fire on the goblins with a crossbow. Deloran staggered into the carriage and Trenia shoved me in right behind him. But she did not get in herself. She closed the door on us and drew her sword as arrows whizzed around her. What was she doing? Had she forgotten what happened the last time a bow was aimed at her? Thankfully, Russ reached the carriage and put a stop to her foolish stand. Get inside, now! Are you joking? They'll hack this thing apart in minutes! Two more arrows struck the side of the carriage. No time to explain. Get in, now! Trenia obeyed. And within seconds, both she and Russ were inside the carriage. How is this going to help? We can't just sit here and wait for them to drag us out. What's going on? Why are they attacking us? I don't know. Just shh. 
Russ closed his eyes and covered his ears with his hands. Oh, well that's going to help. Shh, Trinia, just wait. Trinia and I fell silent as Russ furrowed his brow in concentration. His lips moved as if mouthing a silent prayer. What is he? Shh. All of a sudden, luminous, swirling lines danced upon the black paint of the coach's windowsill, and a glowing orange light radiated from outside the carriage. The magical lines grew brighter and brighter, until all of a sudden, a wall of flame erupted from the carriage and encircled us in a writhing ring of fire, and it burned, burned, burned as the wind whipped it higher. Russ opened his eyes and looked at his handiwork. Okay, good. Now, um, okay, got it. Russ closed his eyes and began mouthing another silent spell. No one dared draw breath, lest they disturb his focus. We heard several loud cracks outside the carriage, and then saw several chunks of rock rise out from the ground and hover in the air. Russ's eyes moved rapidly behind his eyelids, like a person deep in dreams, and beads of sweat blossomed atop his brow. He took a slow breath in, and with a quick hurled the rocks outside the wall of flame. Pained shrieks announced that several of his missiles had hit their marks. The barrage of arrows ceased, and we heard the clip-clop of Pogren's horse and the clash of metal nearby. Trinia put a hand on Russ's sweat-soaked shoulder. Now? Russ gave a weak nod, and the two of them exited the carriage. Whoa, whoa, where are you going? Trinia, your shoulder isn't healed. I tried to tug her back into the carriage. No, 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 Trinia, Trinia! But of course, she didn't listen. A warrior is gonna do what a warrior's gonna do. Russ approached the flaming wall, and parted the flames with a flick of his hand. You know, just casually as one does. Trinia and Russ stepped outside the fiery ring, and Russ gave another flick of his hand. The broken span of fire resorbed into a solid wall as they charged into the battle beyond. Gah, what was Trinia doing? She hadn't lifted her sword in weeks. Her left arm was still in a sling. She was going to get herself killed. Well, I couldn't let that happen. I opened the door and climbed out after her. Mila reloaded her crossbow atop the driver's bench and loosed a bolt into the chaos. A rankled shriek announced that her shot had found purchase. I spun around inside the circle, searching for a way through the fiery wall, but all I could see was the shiny black carriage shimmering in the windswept flames and smoke spiraling above. As effective as Russ's boundary was at keeping out goblins, it was equally effective at keeping me in. Drats! Well, I'd just have to jump through it. That wouldn't be too bad, huh? You know, just jump through a wall of flame. Just shoot, jump. That's no big deal. Woohoo! I took a deep breath and prepared to launch myself into the fire. But a hand gripped my shoulder and spun me around. Owie, get back in the carriage. No, no, I, I have to help her. The best thing you can do to help her is to stay in the carriage. Trina knows what she's doing. We don't need to get in her way. Ugh. He was absolutely right. Getting into the carriage was 100% without doubt the wisest, most correct choice in that moment. And yet, I couldn't do it. Something in me, the panic, the adrenaline, the chaos of it all, would not allow me to sit inside a box on wheels while my friend was out there in danger. Sure, I was terrified to leave but I was far more afraid of what might happen if I stayed. I took a step towards the wall, and once again, Delrin held me back. You have a broken arm and no weapon, Owie. Don't be foolish. But it was just then that I remembered Bertram's dagger was belted to my waist. A book and a knife. 
What can I say? The man knew me. I'm sorry, Del. I've got to try. I brushed Delarin's hand from my shoulder, drew Bertram's dagger from its sheath, and jumped through the wall of flames. Trenia was way further down the road than I expected. She and Russ had joined Pogren near the burning building, and the three of them were working together to drive a handful of goblin skirmishers back into the hills. Scattered around me were the bodies of several goblins, some injured and thrashing, some vacant and still. They all had pale green skin, so pale it was nearly white. Their nostrils were mere slits above a pair of slimy blue lips, and their ears were spade-shaped and pointy, like poplar leaves. They wore wide strips of leather over their eyes, which had been molded into sort of protruding goggles with a vertical slit for each eye, and all of them had wispy green hair tied into dozens of little spikes atop their heads, which gave their scalps the appearance of fuzzy pincushions. As strange and disturbing as they were to me, perhaps the most surprising thing about them was the armor they wore. It looked very much like the boiled leather I'd seen on city guards in Derry. A few goblins wore pauldrons and greaves, other wore gorgets and bracers, and a couple even wore full cuirasses that protected their entire torso. I'd always imagined goblins and raggedy loincloths and, well, I guess just loincloths. Certainly not fancy leather armor like this. But there would be time to think about all that later. From what I could tell, all the goblins near the carriage had already been dealt with, so I ran in the direction of Pogrin, Russ, and Trenia, and the sparkly purple smoke. I'd closed about half the distance between the carriage and my friends when I approached a goblin crawling down the road on its hands and knees. Its feet were entirely encased in blocks of ice from the ankle down, Russ's work, no doubt, and it swiped at my legs as I ran by, snarling. <laughs> I darted past it, and as I ran towards the fray, I caught sight of a goblin crouching with a drawn bow way up on a hillside. Neither Pog, Russ, or Trenia noticed the archer. They were all so occupied fending off the half-dozen goblins before them. Pogren had dismounted his horse and fought side by side with Trenia, who was somehow holding her own, despite being down an arm. Russ stood close behind the other two, using them as a shield so he could concentrate on his spells. My breath caught as the goblin on the hill loosed its arrow. But thankfully, the shaft hit the road several feet away from my friends and skidded harmlessly across the dirt. The archer immediately grabbed another arrow and drew the string again. Their next shot hit Pogren's purple cloak and pinned it to the ground. Trenia quickly cut him free, but ugh, they were all sitting ducks. It was only a matter of time before one of the arrows found its mark. The conversation Trenia and I had had earlier that day came back to me. We already had two fighters, a wizard and a bard in the squad. What if I was the sneaky one? I stopped running towards my friends and instead darted off the road and hid myself on the grass at the foot of the archer's hill. The archer's back was towards me and its attention seemed completely absorbed by the fray down below. So I put the blade of my dagger between my teeth and began crawling up the hillside. I cut a diagonal path up the hill, making sure that I stayed well behind the goblin as I gained height, and I kept myself as low to the ground as possible. I must say, I was darned sneaky. I was steady. I was quiet. I was slow and deliberate. Grade A sneaking, all around, really. Holding Bertram's dagger between my teeth turned out to be the only real challenge, as not only did it cut the corner of my lip, it made me drool uncontrollably. I couldn't really swallow without risking a slice on my tongue, and for some reason having the blade in my mouth really made me salivate. So, you could say I was truly the spitting image of stealth. 
In fact, I was so silent and so sneaky that I came to be ten feet up the hill behind the goblin, and it had no idea I was there. From that vantage point, I saw that Russ had conjured a ring of stony spikes from the earth, which successfully fenced in the remaining skirmishers and effectively ended the fight down below. Trenia and Pog lowered their swords and relaxed, considering their deed to be done. But none of them had any idea that the archer had an arrow trained on them from above. I felt a flutter in my stomach. It was time. I had to strike now or watch my friends get hurt. The flutter increased into a terrifying heat. It was now or never. I couldn't think about it. I had to act. I took Bertram's dagger from my teeth, and with a silent leap, I jumped out of the unsuspecting archer and plunged my dagger into its back. The goblin let out a shriek of surprise and fell forward down the hill. I fell with it, unable to stop the momentum of my leap on the slanted slope. I somersaulted forward, and by the absolute grace of good luck, I managed to kick my feet out as I rolled and landed square on my butt, from which position I was able to slide my way to a stop. The goblin was not so lucky. It tumbled down the slope like a log, rolling and rolling and rolling, until it rolled into a gorse bush and came to a halt. Down on the road, the goblins trapped in Russ's spiky fence had surrendered their weapons. Trenia, Russ, and Pogren appeared weary, but unscathed. I took a deep breath. <sighs> it was over. We did it. We'd won. The fiery heat in my stomach faded away. But as I sat on the hillside observing the full scene of the skirmish, as I counted up the fallen goblins that lay still along the road, as my eyes drifted down to the body in the gorse bush below me, to the dagger, my dagger, sticking out of its flesh, I felt a terrible heaviness settling where the fire had been. It was a weight unlike anything I'd ever known. I descended the hill and approached the archer, where it laid face down in the thorny gorse. I knelt down beside it, watching and listening. It wore bracers on its arms, a gray shawl around its shoulders, and a blue skirt around its waist. Yet it had no protection from my attack. It didn't stir or draw breath. It was dead. Bertram's dagger was still lodged in its back. I had killed it. I'd killed it. I should have felt happy, right? It was my first real hero moment. It was a moment I'd always dreamt of. How many times had I fought invisible foes with a pitchfork in our barn back in Fribbleshire? How often had I gone to bed at night excited to taste battle in my dreams? I'd saved my friends. I'd done the deed. I was a hero. So why didn't I feel like one? Red blood dripped down the handle of my dagger, and the sight of it brought goosebumps to my skin. I never saw the blood in my dreams, nor had I expected it to be red. I had unconsciously assumed goblin blood would be green or blue, like their skin or their lips. Not red. Not red like my blood. I reached out a trembling hand to shift the body so I could see the goblin's face, but a voice spoke behind me. Wait. I spun around to find Trenia sitting behind me a few yards up the hill. Once you see their face, you can't unsee it. What? How long have you been sitting there? Long enough to realize what's happening. What is happening? Trenia rose to her feet and came to sit beside me. This is the first life you've taken. Yeah. Trenia put her arm around my shoulder as silent tears started to stream down my face. 
what do I do? Do I do I do I do something? Do I bury them? Am I am I supposed to bury them? I, I do we have a funeral? I've n- I've never been to a goblin funeral. I, I don't wouldn't know what to do. I don't know anything about how that works. Trinia held me tight. Ali, listen. There's nothing we're supposed to do. There are a great many things we can do, but it all depends on what? On a great number of things. The conditions, what tools you have available, how many have fallen, how much time you have. But mostly it depends on you, on what you want to do. I stared at the goblin's body and noticed a necklace dangling from their neck. The pendant was a flat gray stone inlaid with four intertwining copper circles. I wondered what it meant. Did goblins have gods or friends? I turned back to Trinia. What about what the goblin wants? I hung my head as a wave of guilt washed over me, other than to not be dead. Ali, no real warrior learns to use a sword because they want to kill people they don't know. They learn so they can protect the people they do know. The people that they love. And that's what you did. Come here. Trenia squeezed me tight and put her head on mine. I won't tell you not to feel anything you're feeling, but this doesn't change who you are. This does not make you bad or an evil person. How did she know what I was thinking? I am of the opinion that someone who would weep over an unknown goblin that tried to kill them is in fact a very good person, Ali. I took a deep breath, and we sat in silence as her words sank in. Down on the road, Pogren was piling the other fallen goblins into a heap along the roadside. As a seasoned skirmisher, he performed the job in the way one might stack firewood for winter, or pitch hay into a trough. It was simply a task that needed to be done in order for life to move on. There were at least twelve goblins in the pile. How many had fallen to Pogren's sword, I wondered. How many had been slain by Trenia? Or crushed by Ressa's rocks? How did any of them deal with it? Trenia lifted her cheek from my head and stared at the dead archer. I don't know what this goblin would want. But what would you want if your places were reversed? I thought for a moment. Then I stood up, wiped away a stream of snot with my sleeve and brushed my tears aside. I approached the dead goblin and put my hand on their shoulder. I removed my dagger from their back and covered the wound with their shawl. Then, slowly, I rolled them out of the gorse bush until their face was pointing to the sky. Their pale green skin was free of wrinkles, and their green hair was long and flowing. I removed their leather goggles and found two big yellow eyes with vertical pupils staring up at me, glossy and blank. Trenia showed me how to close them, for which I was most grateful. I then folded their arms across their belly and centered their necklace to be where it would have rested beneath their throat. I placed my palm on their chest and whispered as I wept, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> there were nine survivors inside Russ's stony pen, including the one I'd seen crawling along the road with its feet encased in ice. Apparently, the goblins knew just enough of the common tongue to understand that Pogren would spare their lives if they gave him useful information. The goblin's speech was guttural and raspy, and I could barely make out a word they were saying in response to Pogren's questions. Who ordered this attack? <laughs> yes, order. Who ordered you to attack? I don't big she The big she? Yeah, yeah. Big she. Uh-huh. What does the big she want? Want? 
Want, yes. What does she want? The goblin giving the answers turned back to their fellow prisoners and repeated, Want, she want, crack, snuggle, crack, and crystal snuggle, crack. The spokes goblin returned to Russ and confidently said, Want, no. Pogren rubbed his forehead, frustrated, and tried again. Why did you attack? All the goblins jumped and hissed at the word. Since it looked like interrogations would take a while, Trenia and I sought out Delarin. I still felt raw over what had transpired in the hills and thought Delarin's company might help. The coach had moved down the road and was now parked beside the goblin pen. Russ was sprawled out in the back seat, asleep again. Wow, what a skill. And Delarin was sitting on the luggage rack, speaking to an old man with a soot-covered face. When Delarin saw us approach, he looked relieved, but also upset. Fair. I would have been angry if he'd ignored me and left me alone in the carriage, too. I'm glad to see you safe and sound. Delarin noticed my tear-streaked cheeks and red eyes. Oh, what happened? I'll tell you later. Trinia and I sat down in the dirt across from Delarin and the old man, who Del introduced as Harvey the owner of the hypothecary. He was a short, round, squat man with a pale brown face and ruddy cheeks. He wore purple robes, very similar to Russ's yellow robes in cut and cloth, and had a fluffy white beard that was singed at the edges. The burning building had indeed been his shop, and the Russ had successfully put out the flames. All that remained of the building was a smoldering mass of charred debris. Harvey sighed as he examined his former shop and home. Such a shame, my boy. Such a shame. After seven years, I'd finally perfected my recipe for the Jolly Lolly. Just enough strength to get you giggling, but not enough to give you a sideache. Oh. We'll find you a new shop, Harvey. I'm sure of it. Thank you, my boy. But I'm older than you think. I fear I don't have the strength in me to start all over again. It took decades of work to make that store what it was. All my creations. All my recipes and equipment, poof, all gone up in smoke. Purple smoke? Uh, yes. That would be from the purple burples. I bet I can guess what they did. Even in my desolate mood, the thought of purple burps coming out of someone's mouth made me smile. Aye, they made purple things burp. Oh, well, I guessed wrong. Not many things are purple, you know. My favourite use was when a particularly inventive child sprinkled some on the violets in their mother's garden. One morning, when she went to sniff her flowers, they burped in her face. <sighs> Harvey's smile faded when he looked back at the embers of his former shop. But it's good to know that they explode at high temperatures. I'll have to add that to my logbook. No! Oh! Your logbook was in the shop, wasn't it? Harvey beat his fists against his forehead. Aye. Aye, it was. Ugh. Such a shame, my boy. Such a shame. We can find you a new shop and costume, Harvey. We can find you assistance and investors and equipment. Anything you need. You've brought joy to so many people. You've brought so much joy to me. Please let me do what I can to help that continue. Thank you, lad. I'll think about it. Here, I tell you what. Harvey twisted his belt around his waist to reveal a careworn leather pouch. He opened it and withdrew several small vials and a few tiny paper packets. If it weren't for you and your brothers, I'd be in the same state as my shop. 
Here, these are the rarest of my creations, unique as every child. Please, take them. You have my thanks. Oh, no, Harvey, we can't possibly take these. They're all you have left. I insist. I wish for you to have them. Share them with your brothers and your friends. Take them. Delarin looked at the smoldering wreckage, from which rose the occasional wisp of purple smoke. He nodded and said, Thank you. While Pogren continued his effort to extract useful information from the captured goblins, Russ, Delarin, Trenia, and I dove into the much-needed contents of a picnic basket, expertly packed by Weyland or Kallik. Fruits, sandwiches, sausages, and cheese. It was a smorgasbord of sustenance. As we ate, Melka leaned against the carriage and asked us all sort of questions about the skirmish. They were elated. As far as they were concerned, our journey could not have begun in a better way. So what happened next? After you turned the goblins' feet into popsicles, what next? Melka had a curious contraption attached to their body to help them write down our answers. A sort of flat box which, with one end resting against their belly and the other suspended by a strap around their neck, created a sort of portable writing desk. Inside the box were two rotating dowels, one at the top and one at the bottom, and each dowel had one end of a long scroll wrapped around it, which allowed Melka to feed the used parchment onto the upper dowel as they wrote. And to complete the picture, a little pot of ink rested snugly in a special compartment at the top. Melka's quill moved so quickly as they wrote it was almost invisible, and the lines on their parchment looked like short, scribbly squiggles. Not like words at all. We indulged Melka as much as we were able, but none of us really wanted to talk. Especially not me. There was a collective sigh of relief when Pogren finally left the goblin pen and joined us by the carriage. He plucked a handful of hazelnuts from the basket. What did you learn? Quite a lot, actually. It took a while for things to get going, but once they got going, they went. They say they're working for the Big She. The Big She? That's a funny name for a goblin. The Big She is not a goblin. What? The Big She is a human, and she travels with the Big He. The Big He? Turns out the Big She and the Big He recently returned from a trip. You've got to be kidding me. And? What? Pogren plopped a hazelnut in his mouth for dramatic effect. They're traveling with a goat. <gasps>